0: You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Freedom of Species would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land on which we broadcast today. We pay our respect to the elders of all of the lands on which we meet across Australia. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves From the 3CR studios in Melbourne and via podcast And thanks to Sally from the previous show, Out of the Pan Catch Out of the Pan every Sunday at 12pm Always a great show Today, we're actually going to be playing a previously recorded um, talk by Dylan Fernando. Dylan is a friend of the show, he's been on a few times before, and a fantastic um, animal activist and advocate. Uh, Last year, the talk, this talk was recorded at the Liberated Futures 2019 conference in Melbourne, organised by Collectively Free, Cooler Nations and the Institute for Critical Animal Studies, Oceania. And it really focuses around um, the growing sentiment in the UK that for um, over, climate, over the climate crisis and the development of it, the Extinction Rebellion movement, um, but Dylan sort of reflects on how the public conversation has largely ignored the environmental impacts of animal farming and the need for animals to be included in society's vision for climate justice. In this light, uh, Dylan and others, um, there, there was the development of animal rebellion, a sort of sister um, organization to to Extinction Rebellion. An Animal Rebellion was formed to highlight that we must end the animal emergency if we wish to end the climate emergency. And this is a really fantastic talk by Delan and I hope you enjoy it. Here it is.
1: Hi everyone. I would usually start by doing an acknowledgement of country but um, El has already done a really great one so I'm just going to kind of affirm that and echo that and really just kind of say that um, I hope that the work we're doing here today is really going to be, you know, I, I really like that point on that it should be about not just acknowledgement but action as well, and that hopefully the communities we build here today and the conversations that we have can be used as a step towards um, towards dismantling, you know, the colonial state that Australia is still, you know, gripping today. Um, So, I am Dilan. Lara, apologies, I actually just didn't reply to your email with my bio, so (laughs) it's totally my fault, not yours. Um, So, uh, a few of you, I think most of you here will know me. I've been in the Melbourne animal justice community for sort of the last four-ish years. Um, Probably, mainly might know me through Young Voices for Animals, but also helps co-organise the Marshall Coastal Slaughterhouses, Corey right there and um, Monash Vegan Society, and I've uh, recently, over the last three months, I've uh, spent some time over in the UK uh, volunteering with an organisation called Animal Rebellion, um, coordinating their uh, media and messaging team, and um, so basically there's some really interesting stuff happening in the UK. Uh, a big kind of uh, a lot of momentum behind the environmental movement, um, working towards a future where we are where we're actually taking some meaningful action against the climate crisis. And animal rebellion was an attempt to kind of uh, bridge the gap between the animal justice and environmental movements and really kind of um, collaborate uh, and create some meaningful impact. That will, that will help animals uh, who are also, you know, major victims of the climate crisis. And so uh, in this presentation, I'm just sort of going to go through um, a little bit about... So I'm going to just, just sort of share the story of Animal Rebellion over the last few months um, and really give you a, kind of an insight into my experience of it and draw some learnings from it and kind of hopefully give you an idea of... Uh, like in this particular instance of trying to work together to create a better future, what, how, like complex and messy, uh, and what that can actually look like. So, just a, a a big part of what we were trying to do at Animal Rebellion was spark public conversations um, about the need to end animal farming and fishing and transition to a plant-based food system, and so. Big metric uh, that we were looking at was uh, the media coverage that we received. So this, is just this little slide I want to share with you to kind of illustrate the kind of impact that we had. So over the three months there were 300 plus media appearances, um, a lot of it in like fairly conservative papers that tend to veer away from like proper coverage of animal justice. Um, actions and campaigns, and um, there was plenty of TV coverage, a lot of really kind of going deep into local and regional papers, really reaching those small towns that usually, um, you know, don't, don't tend to get that kind of thing in their local papers, um, and then some exposure in, like, international publications, HuffPost, Lad Bible, and that kind of thing. Over the three months, we brought together about a 1,000 activists, probably in total, kind of uniting them, Uh, behind uh, what we termed the October Rebellion. So it was a um, two-week on-the-ground campaign in London uh, directed towards the government. Um, And we really kind of just introduced some new ways of doing things, I think, to the wider animal justice community in the UK. So just going to now kind of start with actually telling you just the story of how this all happened. And I'm hoping that I'm really hoping that I can leave some time at the end for question time. Um, So I'm going to try and sort of speed through it a bit without going too fast, and we'll see how we go. And pardon if this presentation is a bit messy. I'm like pretty burnt out, to be honest. So I've been preparing this from like a a pretty like burnt out place. But yeah, we'll see how we go. So just a bit of context. um, We're in a climate emergency. Uh, We are facing the potential of social collapse within um, the next few decades uh, and this is backed up by climate scientists across the world. Um, I think this is fairly I'm going to assume that this is fairly well accepted here um, from people within this room and I'm just going to sort of move on and just sort of that's just a scene setting thing really really. Um, so what happened? Earlier this year, uh, we saw the rise of this group, Extinction Rebellion. And there's, they definitely kind of uh, rocked the boat a little bit. And there's lots of conversations happen about Extinction Rebellion, positive, negative, um, all over the spectrum. Um, but one thing that is really clear about what Extinction Rebellion managed to achieve was uh, they managed to really change the public conversation. Uh, around the climate crisis, and all of a sudden you saw a culture shift in the UK where people were really acknowledging that this is an issue um, they, they acknowledged that it 's an issue that we need to take seriously they saw you know they saw their grandsons they saw their colleagues uh, they saw their friends out on the streets um, campaigning for for basically a society where we can all not Suffer horribly, um, so we hit Extinction Rebellion had thousands of people out in the streets, uh, campaigning uh, with using non violent civil disobedience, um, kind of largely, for, for the most part shutting down central London, uh, and eventually we saw we saw kind of a lot of conversations taking place. We saw the UK Parliament declaring a climate emergency. Which was largely a symbolic act; like it didn't really, it didn't have any binding commitments. But it was an acknowledgement. Uh, it was the government's attempt to appease activists and kind of say, "Okay, we've done this. Now, will you go away?" Um, activists obviously decided not to go away. That's not enough. Uh, which led to the development of so basically, the big uprising was in April. Uh, achieved massive change in culture in the UK. Um, but still no action, Not in, definitely not near enough action. So the idea is, all right, uh, they were going to come back in October and do another rebellion. And so uh, people in the animal justice and environmental communities saw an opportunity here, that there was significant common ground. Uh, we all want uh, you know, a safer, cleaner world, uh, and we also recognise that animals are major, you know, are victims of the climate crisis and suffer massively. Uh, And Extinction Rebellion were not necessarily bringing animals into the narrative, and they weren't talking about the massive impact that animal farming and fishing have uh, on the climate crisis. And so there was an opportunity, uh, and a meeting took place uh, between Extinction Rebellion and 18 animal rights, uh, animal justice organisations... And uh, eventually, phone calls were made, people were recruited to volunteer full-time, um, £100,000 in funding came in, um, there was uh, office space secured, and um, activist housing sorted out, and eventually, Animal Rebellion was born. So I'm going to try to distill sort of the, the essence of Animal Rebellion in this one slide here. So, basically, Animal Rebellion starts with a narrative that to end the climate emergency, the government must end the animal emergency. So, if we're going to solve the climate crisis, we need to end animal farming and fishing and transition to a plant-based food system. It operates on... So, it's not an explicitly anti-speciesist message, um, but the idea is that it, it paves the way where we can, you know, if, if we end animal farming and fishing and we kind of take animals off people's plates, it would pave the way for conditions where it's a lot easier to talk about speciesism because it's not so embedded in our everyday lives. So um, so that, that rationale comes from our first value, which is anti-speciesism, um. Other key values are non-violence and this idea of actually understanding how power and and privilege work and breaking down those hierarchies of power, distributing power more equitably across society. Um, It has an organising structure that is built, sort of attempted to build, uh, attempted to be from the ground up geared towards autonomy and decentralisation. It has three demands, which it shares with Extinction Rebellion. So uh, number one, tell the truth. Government must declare a climate emergency. Number two, act now. Uh, get us to net zero carbon emissions by 2025. Uh, and number three, be politics, which basically calls for a citizens' assembly, uh, as opposed to regular politicians, um, to oversee the transition to a zero-carbon economy. So that would involve everyday citizens being, um, being called upon Uh, randomly selected uh, from society and then working with experts to understand what are the best policies that will get us to a zero-carbon economy. Um, And then the strategy that Animal Rebellion uses is derived from something called momentum-driven organising. So what this essentially involves is you create disruptive situations using non-violence you create, you disrupt the status quo. Um, you create a polarizing situation where people are forced to confront an issue and take a side, and then you, through that, you spark massive public, public, uh, public conversations by essentially telling a really compelling story. As you spark more conversations, you then lead to a situation where your support naturally grows because all of a sudden. Loads of these people who haven't actually been thinking about your issue all of a sudden think about it, and they're like, yeah, you know, you're right. Um, I support you now. And then you kind of absorb that support, you add people to your movement, you build power, and then you rinse and repeat. You, You escalate, you disrupt even bigger, generating hopefully even bigger public conversations, which leads to more support, then you absorb that support, rinse and repeat. So the idea is that you continue doing that until you can build enough power that you can exert pressure on powerful institutions and win. Okay. <clears throat> so Animal Rebellion announced itself at the official animal rights march, uh, which took place in the middle of August. Um, it announced that it would be engaging in a two-week uh, rebellion in solidarity with Extinction Rebellion, uh, and that it would be targeting, uh, first up, Smithfield Market, uh, which is really a symbol of the UK animal farming industry because it's the, biggest, uh, it's the biggest meat market in the UK. It's a wholesale market that supplies all of London's restaurants, um, and it's very iconic. Uh, it's a very iconic figure in London. So the plan was to occupy Uh, Smithfield market on day one of the rebellion that was announced through an exclusive in the guardian um, as well as a banner drop at Smithfield uh, which took place concurrently with the march Uh, we did non-violent direct action training at the march um, which was one of many trainings that we did throughout the three months Uh, and so yeah that generated sort of a lot of hype for animal rebellion and kind of really got the ball rolling about a few days later, um, I, I sort of want to stress here that this, this was mashed together very quickly. So that meeting I talked about earlier happened in late June, and so this, this took place in mid-August. So there's was about a 6 weekish ish turnaround. Um, so this is really being mashed together on the fly. To give context, Extinction Rebellion had a solid 12 months of sending people across the country doing trainings before they pretty much did anything, so um, that kind of gives you an idea of the express pace at which this is all working A few days later the world became aware that the Amazon rainforest was, was burning uh, and it slowly came out that it was burning due to the animal farming industry and this was six days after the march and after we'd kind of announced ourselves and Dude, we were like, you know, we were, we were exhausted, but we needed to do something, we needed to mobilise around this because it was like, a, you know, it was, there was a lot of just energy, uh, a lot of outrage around what was happening to the Amazon. And so we collaborated with XR and we joined their protest outside the Brazilian embassy. Um, we had some really strong plant-based food system messaging there. This was in the Daily Mail. Um... There weren't a lot of us there, but our messaging was really strong. Um, Alex Lockwood, who was working on our press team, uh, managed to get an op ed in The Independent, really kind of uh, talking about how animal farming is fueling the climate crisis, uh, sorry, fueling the Amazon fires. And that gained us, that that was, he wrote that on behalf of Animal Rebellion, and so that gained us a lot of credibility kind of in the early days. We also had Marco Springman in the top right corner, who's an Oxford scientist uh, who's volunteering with us, uh, and he spoke at that protest, and I think it'll please a lot of people to hear that there was actually a lot of support from um, Extinction Rebellion people who were there for his message of a plant-based food system and the animal farming, Um, and we'll talk a bit more later about sort of the relationship between Animal Rebellion and Extinction Rebellion. Um, So, lesson one that I want to share. There's 11 lessons, by the way, just to be edgy, going one more than 10. There was originally 14, but I had to cut a few out. just for time. But um, lesson one, sometimes you need to be ready to not be ready. So, like, with the broader thing of Animal Rebellion, I don't think anybody was really ready to do it. But there was just energy there. There was an opportunity and... It was like, we don't know if things are going to be lined up so well like this again. Like, there was just enough people interested in it that it could be a thing. Um, And then with this Amazon protest as well, it gained us a lot of support and people started taking us really seriously um, after we mobilized around this. And so, I guess the question that I'd like to sort of just plant in everyone's heads, is how can we kind of create an environment where we are looking for opportunities where there is, you know, where there are national stories that are getting people interested um, and how can we be ready to kind of just drop everything and, and mobilize around those things. And, and then going beyond that, how can we be ready to be always ready to mobilize around like big crisis points that happens, big national stories of interest. All right, <clears throat> uh, so that takes us to just the lead-up to the rebellion. We um, organized several kind of lead-up actions just to kind of um, kind of really set the frame for our message. There's an artistic demonstration outside the Department for Food, Department for Environment, Food, and Rural Affairs. Um, we planted a tree at Parliament Square in a sort of a act of civil disobedience, like a, quite a beautiful tree planting ceremony, um, to really kind of call on the government in a symbolic way to uh, to kind of you know this is we, the idea was this is, this tree symbolises the future that we want we need you to protect. Um, did a bit of um, uh, civil disobedience at the Old Bailey as well. And then, which brings us to the actual rebellion itself. So this was, the, this was kind of a plan for the rebellion. Uh, as, as many of you will know with plans, uh, they tend to get thrown out the window on day one, but this was the plan. Um, so the idea was essentially to disrupt London, to such an extent that people would be massively talking about this issue and the government would be forced to take action. And so there were 11 Extinction Rebellion sites planned. So these would be basically campsites where people would stay uh, night after night after night for the two weeks. Uh, And from these campsites, there would be trainings, there would be community building, there would be actions organised and then carried out all across the city. And so Animal Rebellion had a site planned here um, just outside the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, DEFRA. Um, And yeah, I think this is the point where I just want to talk about um, this little elephant in the room, which is um, XR Farmers. So there was kind of there was a lot of tension, I think, around animal rebellion, animal justice people aligning themselves with extinction rebellion um, because extinction rebellion had uh, had a subgroup, um, a small subgroup called XR farmers, which involved predominantly animal farmers and they were primarily calling for regenerative farming so um, which involved. Which involves animal exploitation, um, kind of it's kind of a take on humane animal exploitation. It's had a lot of traction in the environmental movement in the last sort of year or so. Um, and so the question was: how do we, as animal advocates, kind of hold strong here? How do we not compromise on our values? But how do we also recognize that? animals need to be part of the climate conversation, otherwise they're going to be left behind. Because the reality is that a lot of environmentalists don't have, uh, don't relate to animal justice and don't promote animal justice. And this was a huge opportunity for us to get in on that conversation um, and really kind of influence it. So the agreement that we came to with Extinction Rebellion and XR Farmers is that we would emphasize our common ground, and leave the tensions to be sorted out for later when, the, when, you know, when we come to those bridges um, that need to be crossed. And it was interesting how this played out. Uh, Extinction Rebellion had previously promoted regenerative farming, and they, they uh, decided that they, they, they promised us that they would no longer promote that, um, so they would remain neutral on the issue of whether animals should be included in our food system, which is still not the ideal thing, but um, that's kind of the territory that they needed to occupy. If they would, because their their whole strategy is trying to trying to unite people from lots and lots of different groups. And farmers um, are a big group, a big group that people really care about in the UK. Um, in turn, XR farmers promised that they would not. They they originally planned to bring. Um, animal flesh to be served at the rebellion and they uh, promised us that they would only bring fruit and vegetables. Um, So obviously there was still tension between the two groups but that was kind of the agreement that that was arrived at that point which I think brings me to my second lesson which is that building coalitions is messy and not always comfortable. And that brings us to day one of the rebellion, and I'm just gonna. Sh- so this, um, we gathered, had around 500 people gathered at Russell Square in London, and um, we did a massive non-violent direct action training before heading out, and then um, marched to Smithfield for our day one. And I want to just share a video with you uh, to give you kind of a little glimpse into the vibes from that day. When we change the world is by making ourselves visible, by coming out in large numbers to say, we need system change. We're not just going to tinker around with the margins on this, we need a complete reset if we're not to spiral into the breakdown of our life support systems. So the more people we can get out, the more we can show that this is now mainstream, the more effective we're going to be. So please, come join us. So, Smithfield was a a really kind of special day. Um, So, essentially, the outline of this action, the the narrative, the story behind this action, was that we arrived at Smithfield, we occupied this archway, which is a really iconic part of Smithfield, Grand Avenue. um, And we set up, we shared a vision. We set up a plant-based market of 2025. Uh, to symbolise what Smithfield could be in a future plant-based food system. So we made a really conscious decision that we did not... So the media has this narrative. The media has this narrative of vegan activists versus hard-working, everyday labourers. And we did not want to play into that. We wanted to really, really, really emphasise we were trying something different. And so it was almost an invitation for Smithfield to be better um, so that was kind of the story at the heart of it, because Smith, remember Smithfield is a hub of, of like animal farming in in the UK and so it was a really special day, and I think the story really filtered out to, to create a really beautiful kind of event. Um, you know, there was singing, there were talks um, there was uh, there were trainings there was, people were trained to uh, participate. In people's assemblies and uh, so people's assemblies are essentially a way to get large crowds, uh, large groups of people involved in democratic decision-making to decide how how like, events are actually going to play out and that, that uh, ended up being really really valuable throughout the rebellion and we'll talk about those more a bit later as well. So they're really positive vibes but we, I think we never really lost sight of the the darkness of the place that we were at, that was always really clear to us. So we came while Smithfield was not running during the day. It's a night market. Um, so then as the workers started arriving, as the atmosphere kind of dimmed down a bit, um, we introduced more space for people to, you know, to grieve and really acknowledge the darkness of the place that we were at. Um, We're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of bodies in this market. To give you context of how big this place actually is, it's about the size of roughly the Melbourne Exhibition Centre, I think. So in the night, we held a candlelit vigil where we marched around the market. um, And, you know, we sang as we did that, and obviously a lot of tears were shed. And you could see the workers watching us... um, throughout the night uh, and I think the really interesting thing here is that we, you know, we really, I think we effectively really disrupted the ideology of Smithfield and what it what, like the, the idea of what that, we disrupted the idea that Smithfield must always be a place of death and we really tried to introduce something different um, but then we also effectively, economically disrupted it because most of Smithfield's customers did not come that day. It's usually a bustling, bustling night market, but because of our presence, even just because we were in a small part of it, we, um, even though we were in a small part of it, it was a ghost town. And this, we really, looking back, we really saw Smithfield as a framing action, which set the tone for the rest of the rebellion. Um, and this, an, this article really kind of serves a gra- as a great example of that. So this is in the Times, which is in like a Middle England paper, so it's not a progressive paper at all. Um, but they talked, they interviewed workers at Smithfield, and they came out and said that they, they actually came out kind of in support of us. Um, so there was one... Let me get it up. My phone is not too slow. Um, so there was... No, I've lost it. Anyway, there was one worker who's like 38 years old. He, his father had worked at Smithfield. His grandfather had worked at Smithfield, and he basically said, um, "You know, I'm not vegan, but I I agree with their message. I agree that my children need a safer future." Um, and a- another another. There's a couple of others who testified uh, similarly as well. So that was that was really interesting. Really, really interesting to see. So, lesson three is the most powerful actions have a story at their heart. Um, So, with Smithfield, we really made clear for us that, you know, if you think about stories, you think you have characters, you have conflicts. So, in terms of thinking about our characters, our antagonists, we were very, very careful to make sure our antagonists were not the workers. Our antagonist was framed as the government. Then we got to day two, which things got a little messy. Uh, we left, we had heard that um, with all the other XR, Extinction Rebellion sites, we got, the police had responded extremely harshly and basically cleared out half the sites on day one. Um, so we were not able to take, so we, we had originally planned to move from Smithfield to DEFRA And we were not able to take that site, There was just too heavy a police presence. We didn't have the numbers, we didn't have the training. Um, And so we ended up consolidating with another XR site, which happened to also be right next to another DEFRA office, conveniently enough. And we had, um, people were milling about, there was a lot of confusion for several hours, people didn't really know what was happening, morale was really low. And so what we did then was we held a people's assembly. So people's assemblies are large, large group meetings where there's a very specific process that you follow to make sure that everyone's voice is heard. Um, so people share, people share like all the relevant information that everyone needs to know. Uh, people share what are the options that we have for, these de- for the decision that we need to make. And then there's kind of a facilitated group discussion that takes place. Once the group discussion takes place and different groups have shared their positions with the whole group, you then get a separate site council meeting um, where the decision actually gets made. And so you have five people randomly chosen from the group and then you have five leaders of working groups as well who have you know, specialist knowledge around things that need to happen. Um, and then a decision was made to stay at this site. The other option was to go to another site where the police were telling us to go and we were like, I don't know if we wanna just do what you're telling us to do. Um and so a decision was made and basically as soon as that decision was announced and the reasoning was announced, it became clear to everyone that people's voices had been heard and morale just lifted immediately. And you just had people singing all of a sudden, people were just like happily setting up their tents, and um it actually ended like surprisingly this day, which was quite messy ended on a bit of a high and so the next thing is that you can build unity by creating structures where people's voices actually matter and actually you know embedding that into processes that are really specifically defined to make sure that people are able to air out their concerns and opinions. The next day, we did an action sh- uh, locking on at DEFRA. Um, the police decided to uh, move in and start grabbing tents. And so XR, the XR group that we were reinforcing uh, decided that they were going to move to Trafalgar Square, where the police were trying to shepherd kind of everybody into Trafalgar Square. Um, and so we ended up also deciding to move to Trafalgar Square since XR were moving as well, and we didn't have the numbers to kind of hold the space ourselves um, at the lock-on action XR came Their Samba joined us to kind of give us some moral support which was really nice um, but yeah this, this day kind of ended with us all being moved to Trafalgar Square which was kind of it was kind of like the XR stronghold um, where the police the police had clearly devised a tactic to get to like close down all the sites, get everyone in one place so that then they can really easily move them out of there. So the police had, had seen XR's April strategy and they were like, they, they clearly understood, they'd clearly taken some time to figure out what XR were actually trying to achieve, what the strategy was. Um, and they had devised a very, a very, like a very effective and illegal, uh, which we recently found out, but effective approach to moving everyone out. Um, and so, lesson five is that the police will read the same books as you if they haven't already. So we're in this world now where you know there's all this civil resistance theory, all this non-violence theory, loads of different theories on organising have now made the transition from the kind of more obscure place of academia into you know your everyday bookstores, and people can access all of this theory. And so that brings us into an interesting world where. How can we effectively use this theory while the police also have, and, and general authorities and institutions also have access to all of this knowledge now, um, and they will access it when they, once they realise what we're doing. I don't know if they're quite as clued in here in Australia, but um, they definitely are in the UK. Um, so that's just an interesting thing to think about. Uh, we did an action at uh, Carval Investors targeted, which was, uh, which was a subsidiary of one of the biggest the, the single biggest uh, corporation that destroyed the Amazon rainforest, um, the big Amazon corporation. Um, but what I actually want to talk about here is a night. So we had a big action uh, being planned at Billingsgate Fish Market. On the Friday night, which uh, was like a really late night action, and just before this action, I was asked to go for a walk, and I was with just a group of people, and on this walk, someone shared an idea that they had that they really uh, they, they they had this idea, and the idea was built off the back of you know, this thought that how can we reach people in a way that's really positive, in a way that's really fun, and in a way that builds a connection with them? And so they, we had this really, really cool walk. We were all just riffing on this idea and kind of building it up uh, and kind of developing it. And it really felt like being children again. And it was just, it, it resulted in something really special, which we'll get into a little bit later. Uh, but I just want to say that like, having room to be silly and playful was so important. Um, having the safety to be accepted as yourself and, be, and bring that playfulness and silliness was so important in how this rebellion was shaped. Um, which leads to my next thing, which is safety leads to playfulness, leads to magic. But uh, before we can get into any of that, let's talk about Billingsgate. Billingsgate is the UK's largest inland coastal fish market. Um, it is it, it would be responsible for housing billions and billions and billions of marine animal bodies throughout Earth each year. Uh, so we had planned to orchestrate an action there, kind of occupying uh, the entrance of Billingsgate. Um. And following in similar footsteps to Smithfield really, kind of trying to open space for dialogue, etc. cetera. Uh, the only problem was there was a little kink in the plans in that our meeting spot, which was near Billingsgate, was actually in private property. So what we ended up being greeted with was that when you assemble on private property, if the person who owns the property has a problem with you being there, then the police can just block you off at every turn. And that's exactly what they did. And so we had no way of reaching Billingsgate, which meant that morale dropped massively, even as we tried to keep it up, even as people were singing, uh, even as people were really trying to just think, okay, something's gonna happen. Uh, Something evidently was not gonna happen. And so we were almost at the point where people were starting to say, "Let's, let's just call it off let's say, you know, we we mess up here, let's let's walk away. But then something really interesting happened. All of a sudden, I was at sort of the front, and all of a sudden, the, the, the group, which must have been, like, a couple hundred people, just started moving the other way. And I was like, oh, what's going on? And so I, like, ran all the way back to the other side of the group, and I found that two people, two people who did not have, like who did not have positions or roles of responsibility or anything in Animal Rebellion, had decided to start moving the group elsewhere. And I was like, alright, what's the plan? And they were like, okay, yeah, we, we actually live in the area, and we think we can find a way around this. And so what happened was, they actually managed to find a way out of the private property, onto Public Road, and then back onto Billingsgate. And so, by some magic, we happened to get to Billingsgate. And this actually, all of a sudden, the morale just went right down from here all the way back up to here. And we managed to have this really beautiful action where we had um, we had speeches, we had singing, like loads of singing, um, and we had space for dialogue where we kind of invited Billingsgate to dialogue with us on, on transitioning away to a plant-based food system. Um, and... It ended up being like this absolutely wonderful atmosphere where, wonderful in one sense, obviously there was a lot of grief happening at the same time. This was, again, a really dark place. Um, and the Billingsgate... There were Billingscape workers there. You can see a couple of them there, um, kind of looking at us and, and listening to everything that we had to say. Uh, and the atmosphere was really kind of... really set up really strongly by the singing that happened... Um, which brings me to my next thing, which is that singing changes absolutely everything. So singing really was a defining factor in the tone that we were able to set up throughout the rebellion. It was very deliberately chosen um, as a method of de-escalation, um, and I just, I just really want to testify how how transformative I think singing can be for campaigns and actions. Okay, so what happened at Billingsgate? So things were quite peaceful, and then eventually things started getting more tense. So the Billingsgate market itself, there were, there were workers there looking at us, but Billingsgate market itself decided um, they didn't, they they forbade all the workers from having any from talking to us at all. Um, the police all of a sudden decided to start moving in and. They threatened to arrest everyone. And so this brought an interesting situation for us, which is like, okay, what do we do now? All of a sudden, so the police were blocking the whole, the whole market, so we couldn't get in. There was a plan, there was kind of plans being made to lock on and, and kind of escalate, um, but we weren't really able to do that. But then someone did something really clever. So the police weren't letting any activists through. But they were letting, like, customers of the market through Again, it's a night market. And so a couple of activists decided to order an Uber and just go straight through the police line. <laughs> and so this activist here, Sally Proctor, managed to lock on. And it, again, it, it totally transformed the action and it turned it into something um, where there was a really interesting story and there ended up being... And so are loads of other... So we took a stand... Loads of other people took a stand. There ended up being 28 arrests from that action. Um, And it had massive, massive media coverage again. So lesson eight, if you create the right conditions where people feel empowered, where people feel um, like their role matters, they will step up to lead without being asked. So I want to put put the thought out there. How can we create conditions where people... People feel compelled to take responsibility and when they see things that need to be done they'll then go out and and do those things rather than kind of uh, you know we live in a society where we we are always in organizations where we expect to be told to do stuff. Um, So how can we change those patterns? Alright, so had a big high from Billingsgate and then that gave us the confidence to orchestrate an experiment. So we were thinking, how can we... So again, going back to that night where I went on a walk, we thought of this idea, how can we reach people, how can we reach mainstream people um, in a way that really connects with them in a positive, joyful way. Extinction Rebellion have this standard tactic, it's called the swarm. So they'll have a bunch of people uh, they'll go onto a road, onto an intersection, for five to seven minutes. Um, so it's very low likelihood of arrest, um, and they'll they'll take that intersection, they'll disrupt it, um, they'll have their signs, they'll get the message out there, and then they'll go away. Forms are effective for training activists uh, in civil disobedience. Um, they're not super great for getting the message out there because they tend to piss off drivers. So we were thinking, alright, how can we, how can we do our own version of the swarm, how can we do this, how can we create a really easy action, um, but make it fun? And so, we decided to have an experiment, uh, it was meant to be very small, but it ended up turning very big and having quite an absurd police response. So this is the part where the presentation gets weird, uh, and I have no idea how this is going to land. So I'm just going to play this video now uh, because this is how the experiment went down. that was at the end anyway. Um, so, yeah, that was a thing. Um, <laughs> so basically, we had this idea of doing this veggie dance party on an intersection of Oxford Circus, and what ended up happening was, as soon as we got there, we were greeted by seven police vans, and they, they asked our police liaison, who was dressed as a P, to tell everyone that they were going to be arrested if they didn't leave. And then as he got on the microphone to tell everyone that, they arrested him, which was very confusing. And so then we were like, okay. And they didn't let us on the road, obviously. And so we crossed the road. And then they started telling us, um, if you don't leave, we'll arrest you. But then they would already surrounded us, and they weren't letting anybody leave. Uh, and so that was all, again, very confusing. But what this basically ended up creating was... So this led to kind of a chain of events. So, this video went viral of this guy dressed as a broccoli being arrested. Uh, Reuters retweeted it, got two million views in like two days. Um, And then Piers Morgan, who is like one of the most infamous and well-known breakfast show hosts in the UK, retweeted the video with one word, Christ. Um, And eventually, uh, Mr Broccoli, as he later became known, was invited uh, on Good Morning Britain, which is one of the sort of the biggest breakfast show in the UK. And so, that put us in a position where we were going, oh my god, what do we do? It was our dream to be on Piers Morgan, but not to have a guy dressed as a piece of broccoli on (laughs) Piers Morgan. And they wouldn't take anyone else. We tried to give them, like journalists and scientists, and they were like, no, we want broccoli. We were like, all right. And so, there's a thing with Piers Morgan. It's that you can't debate him. Um, because he shouts you down, he interrupts you, and he turns everything into personal attacks. And this was going to be especially true if he was going to be up against a piece of broccoli. And so, we took a different strategy, We spent about, a bunch of us spent seven hours in a room trying to figure out how we're going to tackle this. Uh, and we decided we weren't going to treat this as an interview, we were going to treat it as an action. And we were going to try and call out Good Morning Britain and the media for how irresponsibly They've treated the climate crisis. Um, and essentially the message we wanted to send was, you should be interviewing scientists about this, not pieces of broccoli. And so we sent Mr. Broccoli on Good Morning Britain, and he <laughs> did not take the interview seriously at all. Um, whenever Piers, uh, When Piers asked him uh, what, jo- what was his job, Mr. Broccoli just responded with, I grow. Um, <laughs> he kept addressing... Piers Morgan as Pease Morgan. Uh, when he was being grilled uh, about his personal circumstances and whether he knew about the silence, um, he kept just saying, I'm Mr. Humble Broccoli, and pulled out a, a phone with, from his jacket pocket, which was just a Banana. Um, so basically, this the video of this interview just went absolutely viral, and Mr. Broccoli ended up trending number one on Twitter. Um, we got a lot of backlash from the animal justice community uh, for the way we handled this. People um, we saying, you know, you should have just gone on there and talked about methane, you should have talked about the land use, da-da-da. Um, we got a lot of backlash from Good Morning Britain viewers as well on Twitter. But then, after about an hour, something interesting happened. And, like, the video reached a different audience, uh, a wider audience from social media. And this audience seemed to actually get what was happening. Um, and people found this hilarious like Mr. Broccoli became incredibly popular for those couple of days um, and you can see some of these messages here like um, Piers, have ha, had you made a coherent powerful science based argument you could have made real impact and he's saying that to a guy called Mr. Broccoli who answers his banana phone you know scientists exist right you could ask them these questions so loads of people like that kind of just understanding that it, it made the media look ridiculous basically. We took Mr. Broccoli out on the street a couple of times and people loved him. Like, if you wanted to take a, a half an hour walk, it would take him like three hours because people would just constantly stop him and want to take selfies with him. So we essentially created basically a national icon. Um, two days later, we unmasked Mr. Broccoli as Roland Everson, now a good friend of mine, uh, carpenter from Bristol, owns a small business. And he explained, you know, spelled out really clearly what was the reasoning for all of this. So Mr Broccoli is a tool to show how ridiculous the showcasing of this issue is. The media should be interviewing scientists rather than giving time to Broccoli. Um, So this was an exclusive in the Evening Standard because they were really trying to hunt... They were hunting down his identity. And so we kind of took advantage of that. Um, And that got spread really widely in the media as well. Uh, And, you know, Mr Broccoli, again very popular, people spotting him on the tube. There were lookalikes. there was a Spanish talk show that did a skit where a guy was dressed as Mr. Broccoli for some reason, someone made this amazing painting of him. Uh, He was included in a potential Halloween costumes list on The Independent. Um, We did an action where we happened to pass by a Brexit march, a really, really big one, where the mayor of London was there and Patrick Stewart was there. And Mr. Broccoli was so famous that he was spotted there, he wasn't actually at the breakfast march, Brexit march, I want, to, I want to make that clear, sorry, anti-Brexit march, but Mr. Broccoli was so famous at that point that the headline read that Patrick Stewart joined him. Rather <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Okay, so I guess with Mr. Broccoli, did we land what we were going for, 100%? Probably not. But did we connect with people in a really interesting way and get a plant-based food system message out there in a really interesting way? Um, I think so. And we tried something different, and I'm, kind of, I'm proud of that. That uh, we, we took a massive risk in how we handled the Piers Morgan interview. And so lesson nine is to make progress, we need to learn. To learn, we need to take risks. And to take risks, we need trust. And I want to plant a thought out there which is like how can we create communities where we're really looking um, at how can we innovate and how can we try new things uh, and feel safe to experiment with our actions? As we came to the wrap-up of the rebellion, we orchestrated a couple more actions on the left hand here um, at Newman's, uh, Newman's Abattoir on the right hand at Red Tractor, which is like the humane certifying organisation in uh, the UK. And then we capped it off with a final veggie dance party, just a really kind of joyful celebration of everything we'd kind of the communities we'd built and the messages we'd put out there during the rebellion. Um, So we marched throughout the streets, um, loads of people dressed as fruit and veg, um, just really joyfully spreading this plant-based food system message. Uh, And we did this really interesting thing where someone spontaneously decided to do the dance party through a department store. And the shoppers actually loved that and we were just handing out leaflets everywhere and they they were just eating it up. And so that brings me to my next little bit, which is we can connect with more people by tapping into the wider spectrum of emotion. So, like, I think... In animal justice activism, we tend to often uh, really dwell on the seriousness of the situation, which is definitely valid, definitely important. Um, But the other thing is, I think the world is really, really serious already, and sometimes people have enough of that. And so sometimes it's like overload. And we can connect with people by connecting to other emotions that aren't so serious, and we can tell stories that aren't so serious. And obviously, that is context-dependent, right? You wouldn't go to a slaughterhouse and have a veggie dance party. But if you want to send a message about a plant-based food system, not necessarily animal justice, but a plant-based food system, that's when that kind of story can actually work. And you can talk about all the benefits and the joy that society can reap from such a transition. Uh, So what's happened since the rebellion? the government made a half-assed attempt at organising a citizens' assembly, which again would have no binding uh, commitments uh, to take action. But it is some kind of uh, it is something. The citizens are having a say. Uh, the EU Parliament has declared a climate emergency. Uh, more specifically, to Animal Rebellion, an interesting piece of news. Uh, big coverage around Smithfield Market um, now offering. Uh, a plant-based burger. I'm not gonna claim that we actually brought this about because uh, the truth is that the plant-based burger was already there, Um, but nobody was, apparently nobody was buying it. Um, But now everybody knows about it because the Daily Mail kind of put the two pieces, put Animal Rebellion and the burger together and we're like, yeah, so that's that. And then, so we're at a stage now where, I'm just going to take that away for a sec. We're at a stage now where Animal Rebellion has done this big thing, spent three months kind of really matched this thing together and coming back together to reflect. We really came to realize ultimately this is the big lesson that we took away is that being sustainable means doing kind of the foundational, really boring work, you know, setting up the processes so that you can have a self-managing organization. We really didn't have enough processes around that. Um, incorporating practices to build a strong culture where people understand power and privilege um, having structures in place uh, for equity um, and empowering marginalised groups and um, you know really kind of seemingly boring stuff like organising your data, the thing is if you don't organise your data you can't communicate with people so I just want to stress the importance of that boring stuff
0: I wanted- When I was new to Melbourne, I found a food not bombs flyer on the road and I had like this fist with a carrot, and carrots are my favorite vegetable. Yeah, I think
1: they were asking for help doing stuff, and I got in touch.
0: We, I guess, rescue food that would otherwise go to waste. I like
1: the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything
0: for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. Food not, food not you're listening to Freedom of Species, 855 AM, 3CR, of Community Radio. And that was Dylan Fernando at the Liberated Futures 2019 conference in Melbourne, organised by Collectively Free Kulin Nations and the Institute for Critical Animal Studies Oceania. A lot of great things to learn from Dylan there, reflecting on, on the role of Animal Rebellion UK Um, during protests in 2019 uh, and some some really important takeaways. That's all we have for this week. Make sure you stay tuned for Encyclopedia, that's up next and tune in for Freedom of Species next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.